keep it going. Hosting and bandwidth provided by the Blue Box Group. Check them out at bluebox.net. This podcast is sponsored by New Relic. To track and optimize your application performance, go to rubyrogues.com slash newrelic. This episode is sponsored by JetBrains, makers of RubyMine. If you like having an IDE that provides great inline debugging tools, built-in version control, and intelligent code insight and refactorings, check out RubyMine by going to jetbrains.com slash ruby. This show is sponsored by Heroku Postgres. They're the largest provider of Postgres databases in the world and provide the ability for you to fork and follow your database just like your code. There's easy sharing through data clips or just for your data, and to date they have never lost a byte of data. So go and sign up at postgres.heroku.com. Hey everybody and welcome to episode 104 of the Ruby Rogues podcast. This week on our panel we have Katrina Owen. Hello. Josh Susser. Good morning from San Francisco. James Edward Gray. Good morning from Oklahoma, where it is now over 80 degrees. I'm Charles Maxwood from devchat.tv, and uh, this week we have two special guests. Uh, Our first guest is Bruce Williams. Hello from Portland, Oregon, where it's finally sunny. And our other guest is John Athade. Hello from uh, outside of D.C., where we're waiting for the cicada invasion. Awesome. So I'm wondering if you guys can briefly introduce yourselves. We'll have John go first. I work at Living Social. I run the uh, the small team that does all of the UX and front-end code for our internal applications. I come from an architecture background of the building variety, and I've done a lot of UX and Rails stuff over the last almost you know, Rails since 2006-ish, and I've been doing design and print stuff for since 95 or so. And I've been working with Bruce since the InfoEther days, and then we both got acquired into Living Social. Nice. And and Bruce, you want to introduce yourself? Sure. Um, like John said, we used to work together at InfoEther. I've been uh, using Ruby since 2001, um, back when I met Chad and Dave and a few others in an IRC uh, chat room that had very few people in it. Um, and since then, I've been having a blast. I like John said, I work at Living Social uh, with him now uh, as a technical director on the merchant side, um, which means I write code, but not all the time. And uh, I've been doing Vue stuff for the last few years with Rails. I've been using Rails since it since it came out. And in a past life, I was a language translator for the uh, uh, for the government, which is a completely different field, but for some reason, somewhat informs uh, how I approach software development. Cool. All right, so the reason that we have you here is because uh, for our book club book, we read The Rails View. To start us off, I'm a little bit curious as to why you chose to write a book about The Rails View. I mean, most of the technologies involved, such as CSS and HTML, are, are pretty well understood. So how did you come up with the idea of kind of attacking this angle? Speak for yourself. I don't understand them. I was about to say the same thing. <laughs> I, I would love to say that I've seen evidence that is true. I think that people understand them individually. Um, and I certainly think that there's a large community of people that care a lot about HTML and CSS uh, together. When you mix it in with Rails and you mix it with software developers that think of drying up their Ruby code, um, but once they start to get into the view layer, they start to get a little bit messy, start to drop things in various places and let other people clean it up uh, a lot of the time um, and start to forget about things like patterns um, in a good way. 
it felt like that it was needed. I mean, both John and I have talked about the subject for the last few years, and those talks have been full every time with people with questions. So it seemed like it made sense to us. It actually started as I, I had originally pitched a book about HTML and CSS to Prague Prague, and turned out that Brian Hogan had already started writing one. And so I made up a talk for RailsConf in Baltimore, which was basically the genesis of the book. And it was standing room only. I was like, oh, okay, I think people might be interested in this. It's funny you bring up Brian Hogan. I'm actually going to be talking to him in about two hours uh, on JavaScript Jabber. Oh, nice. So, And we're talking about building accessible websites. So anyway, well, and Brian, Brian was, was our editor. <laughs> oh, really? It worked <laughs> out funny. quite well, actually, yeah. I think one of the things that kind of hit me heavy and hard when I started reading the Rails view was how little thought I had put into how complex it is and how, tr like, there are so many technologies that meet in that one place. You have the HTML and the CSS and, and the JavaScript. I mean, those are the, the basic ones. But then in the Rails view, you also have the ERB and the HAML, and you might end up with the X, the XML builder and the JSON builders of, of various flavors. And then you have the SAS and Compass and the asset pipeline and all of the various templating languages, ERB, Haml, I probably mentioned um, all of that already. It just, it's an overwhelming amount of different technologies in one space. And I, it hadn't really occurred to me how complex it, it, it is. It's kind of funny. It's like we talk about the presentation layer but the presentation layer is actually a ton of little layers within itself. The whole time I was sitting here listening to Katrina talk, nodding my head and thinking, how the heck did I get myself into this? <laughs> yeah. That, yeah. That, when, when I read the book, I thought, why is this called the Rails View? It should have been called, like, how to do awesome front-end web development when you're writing a Rails application. That's an interesting point. <laughs> yeah, I mean, yeah, it's, it, it's much... about renaming that. Yeah, it's it's um so it's interesting because I, 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 I saw the title and I thought, oh, this is all about like tricks you can do when programming the view system in Rails. And I thought, oh, you know, we'll get some custom form builders and you know, maybe some form objects or something. But no, there was like you started with like CSS and HTML and HTML five and it was such a broad range of topics that you went through in the book. It was it was not at all what I was expecting, but it was definitely a nice surprise. Yes, it's interesting that the starting at the beginning part is hard, especially when we've given talks in the past. We've had some pushback from people um, that, you know, this starts too slow. We've got too, too much HTML, too, too much CSS. But I think people forget how often people are missing uh, significant chunks of that knowledge and how important it is to have a firm foundation before you start to play with the rest of it. It's, t it's too easy to, it's, it's really easy to get too deep too fast. Yeah, I actually um, read this book quite a while ago. I think I was uh, maybe the first one that read it in our group. And I, I ended up talking about it in a talk I gave, uh, 10 Things You Didn't Know Rails Could Do. Several of the examples uh, in that talk were actually pulled from this book. In fact, the, the cover slide on Comfreaks I just noted, you know, basically picked a random slide. And if you look in the lower left-hand corner, it says from the Rails view. But so that's shows you how often it popped up. But when I read this book, it was before I had looked into HTML5 at all, seriously. And you had kind of a, a light intro uh, to HTML5 and some of the concepts. So this was like my first exposure to that, even though, uh, uh, you know, I do this kind of stuff kind of a lot. <laughs> 
And the thing I've noticed um, working just in so many different apps, I see so many people that it's it from the give up and use tables has turned into the, well, I'll just put div and span on it because I don't know what to use and I'm afraid that I'll use the wrong thing. So I, I know a div is the least offensive of all these items I can choose. Um, and, and every talk I give, I go up and there's a great HTML5, which element to use flowchart uh, from HTML5 doctor. And I put that up. And there's also, I think, the HTML5 periodic table of elements, which has links to all the documentation. And I mean, there's, there's I've been doing this for a long time, and there's ones in there I don't even know how to use. You know, there's easily 100 different, you know, tags to start with. Yep. So I'm curious how you know, doing a discussion of HTML and HTML5 in the context of Rails changed the way that you approached that? Because, I mean, there's been a bunch of discussions of HTML5 that I've read in the last couple of years, but this was, yeah, well, maybe you should talk about it rather than me talking about it. <laughs> your, your approach to, like, the things that you talked about within HTML5 and, the, and like, the path through it. Yeah, it, it was difficult. I think our starting point was probably forms more than anything else, because there's been a lot added around there. Um, and we've got a pretty large chapter in the book that, that focuses on forms. So that kind of came to the forefront. Back when we wrote the book, there was very little support for the new HTML5 tags uh, in Rails, let alone some of the other parts of, of the book that had to be kind of rewritten as new things came out constantly, as as you do. I mean, we, we struggled with it a lot early on, uh, talking about it too much, talking about it too little. So we tried to focus on the tags that we were planning on using throughout the rest of the book with a focus on forms and kind of layout elements. And it certainly did change. I mean, there's a definite semantic taste to the book. We tried to push the semantic side of the of the argument as much as we could because I think that appeals a lot to software developers um, like ourselves who care about names in our Ruby code. So why don't we care about names when we're writing markup? And that was something that really affected us. Yeah, I'd say that came through. I actually have a note about how I liked the focus on good design, especially semantic tags and stuff. And it, we should probably say that with your HTML5, you know, kind of heavy intro, you do use, uh, show how to use things like modernizer and stuff so that, you know, you can just kind of, kind of count on this modern approach. Modernizer is such a powerful tool. We didn't really go into too much depth in it, but the, the real power to me lies when you start doing stuff in where you don't know who the end user is, but you want to use something new and cool. Let's say uh, geolocation in HTML5. You can actually sit there and detect if it has it. Do X. It's it's the Yepnote JS library is kind of the core of Modernizer. So it's something that's really powerful to let you have great fallbacks for things that don't work. Sure, the polyfills and stuff are fun. Oh, great! I've got HTML5 elements in you know IE now. But getting into that, how do I handle things that uh, I don't expect or that that people don't have if they've turned it off or it's broken or something like that. That to me is really where Modernizer can can save your bacon or make your app really great. I think that one of the things that the book covered really well was that this is these are technologies that okay they are in many ways young, but people have been struggling with a lot of this for a very long time, and there are a lot of really good solutions that help you sort of um, give you a clean slate, a solid foundation that you can build on. So don't try to, don't, don't try to reinvent it. Really don't. There were actually a lot of different technologies that, or, or software libraries or uh, whatever you want to call them uh, discussed in the book. I mean, you know, you went, you know, you, you started with, uh, you know, ERB and, you know, you talked about Hamel, uh, SAS, SCSS, uh, Capybara, uh, vanity, cucumber, selenium. I mean, yes, yes, selenium. 
there was just like this like ridiculous set of if we just like named all of them i don't know how many it would be it would be over two dozen easily you know you've got jquery jquery it's like everything and in some sense it's overwhelming but it was also i think really interesting to see how you it didn't have to become like you know just because you're using factory girl in one part of your application it wasn't like oh here we have to convert everything in our application to use this new technology I thought it was nice how you just sort of dropped stuff in and showed how you could ease into taking advantage of that piece of technology without having to like, make ridiculous changes to what you're already doing in the application. Well, and I know for me that comes from having to do that in real life. I work on a really big legacy app most of the time, and I can't. there is no such thing as the great rewrite. It, it will not happen. It's just not a possible solution. So how can I use these new tools without having to throw the baby out with the bathwater? So it's, you know, that's definitely something that influenced us moving in is, is our day-to-day work. I have to ask, though, with adding new technologies in and then just moving ahead using them, are, are you afraid that some of your older code will be inconsistent with the new code? Well, there's definitely issues where we've got whole swaths of the, uh, the app that are kind of older code and newer code in the view, um, at least with the stuff I'm working on today. And We've kind of been pushing, it's, it's kind of this like uh, refactoring passes is something we've been doing a lot lately. So instead of saying, I'm going to make this one whole section the most incredible thing ever and everything else is still horrible, I'm just going to go through and I'm going to just do a little bit of readability refactoring. So I'm going to spend my Friday cleanup, I'm just going to do readability refactoring and get one whole pass through the app and bring everything up and float all those boats. Then I'm going to say, okay, here's the next pass I'm going to do. And this may take a little longer to see, like, especially when we're doing like UI changes. That's the kind of stuff where you have to worry about, you know, okay, I'm, I'm going to break some tests here because I'm changing a div to this or I'm renaming IDs or things of that nature that are, that were just poorly named in the first place. That's where like, things get kind of crufty. But, you know, it's, I, I found that it's really nice to be able to just go in and break things into partials where you've got a 2000 line ERB file that just needs to be broken up and cleaned up. Please tell me that you've never had a 2000 line ERB file. I've had numerous 2,000 line ERB files. They are no more, but I have had numerous ones that I've worked through. Yeah, they they exist. They're pretty gross. <laughs> hey, hey, they start of the- gross. They start off as you know something simple, and then as something grows very quickly, all these things just get tacked on, and somebody's like, "We'll get to that later," and then nobody gets to that later. Well, well on- honestly, a 2,000 line anything is pretty gross, right? And exactly, here you're mixing languages, so that makes it even worse. Yes. Okay. So speaking of the big rewrite, you know, the, the book has been out for like a year or something like that. It's 18 months now. Okay. So this kind of technological landscape is a bit of a moving target. And I'm, I'm curious, like if you were going to do a revision now, what are the things that you would most want to change about it? Yeah. I mean, things have definitely changed. I mean, we're talking about Rails for RC1B now um, as well, just recently. So I think. There's a whole slew of new technologies that we probably want to focus on. I know that's scary, speaking that we already talked about a whole slew of them, but things have changed somewhat. Um, there's things like TurboLinks, there's caching changes in, in Rails specifically. There are certain libraries that we wouldn't want to focus on as much. For instance, Vanity, we might not want to focus on as much. And, and there's some other pieces that we think, based on feedback, uh, we'd want to tackle, uh, based on the way that people are constantly evolving in this space. I think the the focus on on uh, markup will always be there. Um, I think there's more things that we can take for granted, though, because when we first wrote this book, 
uh, at first, the asset pipeline wasn't even there. We actually had to rewrite a good chunk of the book because the asset pipeline arrived. And suddenly we had to explain that and what that meant. And that also pumped up things like CoffeeScript. And oh, guess what? Now we're going to talk about CoffeeScript in more detail because it's important. So some of those things are more of a given now. So we have to, we would have to focus on them less in certain ways. But yeah, it's definitely something that we're looking at. So okay. there, there is going to be a new version of the book coming out someday soon-ish. Oh, we, we, we hope. Uh, John, John and I are, are thinking about that a lot uh, right now, and and we'll and we'll see what happens. We certainly think that with Rails four, there's some interesting things. The book. That's not to say, of course, that people shouldn't run out immediately and purchase the book, um, because a that would be great for my coffee budget, but also because um, there's a lot of good stuff in it. But there are some things here that we think people should know about and should um, would would be very helpful. Yeah. Well, also, um, pragmatic programmers have a pretty good upgrade policy for new editions of books, right? That's correct. Yes. So if you so if you buy it now, you can get the new edition either like for free or for cheap. So. Yeah. Bruce, you mentioned uh, CoffeeScript. One of the questions I had reading the book, you had a really, I think, almost ideal intro for uh, SCSS in the book. It was just like just the right amount to get into it without you know going too overboard and stuff. And I was kind of surprised not to see a similar level intro for CoffeeScript. What made, why, why that decision? Yeah, so I, I think there's a big difference between the two, um, one of which is just kind of the Turing complete nature of CoffeeScript and how daunting that can be. I know a lot of Rails developers, especially that are, are great at Ruby, but not great at, at JavaScript, and not even slightly great at JavaScript, just enough to be able to kind of wire in some jQuery plugins. Um, which I think is kind of, you know, par for the course in some ways. It was, I think it was a less complete introduction for the simple reason that it was a much larger topic. There's, there's already been books on the subject. There's plenty of JavaScript books out there. We didn't want to break that in too deeply. Um, we also, there's so many questions around that space and there's so much persuasion that you have to do, um, around you should use CoffeeScript. We, we talk about some controversial topics. That's one of them. But yeah, it was just a decision we had to make. Like he's, like Josh said, there was a lot of material in the book. Um, and so we didn't want to focus too heavily on that. So there's a little bit of, you, you do some testing discussion using Selenium and Capybara and Cucumber to drive some of the, some of the stuff that you're uh, talking about in the, uh, the JavaScript chapter. But you don't have any discussion of sort of JavaScript unit testing as in uh, like using Jasmine was that uh, how did you decide like what level you wanted to do that testing at? I, I can see how like a, a big discussion of coffee script might not be appropriate for the book because it's not really a view related technology as much as something else. Is that, was that the same point about Jasmine that it just wasn't as good a fit for the problem domain? Yeah, I think that was part of it. I think Jasmine tests um, tend to be very, very focused on that, on that piece of the layer the layer of the layer. Capybara's got a little bit more crossover. Um, it's easier, I think, to talk to um, Rails developers because they have more immediate knowledge of it because of uh, it's basically been around for a bit. Jasmine is much more focused, obviously, on the purely on the client side. Yeah, it was just a decision, a call we had to make uh, for the length of the book, really. I really am very interested in that space. and I'm interested in um, being able to run that from Rake and with the rest of your test suite and doing CI with it, it was just a, a call we had to make as we were putting the book together. Okay. Coming from like 
how we were going to build the book. The book ended up being more of kind of a survey book. Um, and then you, you know, your intro class you would take in college or something. And then you would drill into each of these. And I know that's probably a big hole that does exist for any aspiring writers out there is a Rails JavaScript book. Um, Steve Clavin did a great job writing up some documentation in the, the repo now. So there's actually good JavaScript documentation, but that's still a big question. And there's, there's so many things that change there. I mean, since we wrote the book, Ember's gone 1.0, Angular came out. And it's one of those things of how far do you drill down into any of those? And what, what do you give up in order to do that? Right. And then there's the big question of how client side do you want to go in a Rails book? Being that there's a lot, there's several camps there. I mean, there, we, we like to talk about controversy in certain places in the book. And that's certainly another one we could talk about is how rich do you want the client layer to be? I do, um, wait, just so we don't paint it that, that you don't have any JavaScript coverage in the book. That's certainly not true. I, um, thought the coverage of jQuery's UJS for Rails was actually really good. Um, I just, it, it was nice to hear. I think we all just kind of use that and take it for granted, you know, but you actually laid out like what it is and that was great. There were some technologies I thought that, like you said, it's sort of a survey of technologies. And I, I liked you showed how simple it was to use some of these technologies, uh, you know, from Capybara to SCSS to Factory Girl. Uh, what I, what I felt was just maybe a little weak was, there was very little discussion about the trade-offs for making the choice to use one of those technologies. For instance, like Factory Girl was presented as, oh, here's a, you know, here's a nice way to be able to generate your test fixtures programmatically. And that was it. And there was no discussion about what the potential costs of using something like Factory Girl was and what it was good for and where maybe it falls over and you shouldn't be using it. And I understand that's like a whole, you know, big mess to deal with on its own. And that's, you know, potentially, you know, a whole chapter of a book talking about those trade-offs. But it seemed like there was just, in some cases, there wasn't really any of that discussion. Well, I think I think part of, so Factory Girl as an example, the book is called The Rails View. So the, there's a challenge in general with writing a book about a layer of a framework um, because you have to build an app in it. Um, and when you build an app, you're out of necessity going to have to use pieces that are not, focused on that layer. So when we do go into discussions of trade-offs, um, I think we focused on those in portions of the application that were wholly view-related. Um, so we talk, for instance, uh, more in forms about things like that, um, about why you might want to use this. We actually, in a few places, we build the solution ourselves in a kind of a vanilla way. Forms is a good example. And then pull in something else later um, to show, yeah, see, that's how that works. Now we can use these things here to make that easier. So I think some of the trade-offs there are already self-evident because we've just worked through the problem. But yeah, things like Factory Girl, I agree there definitely are trade-offs, even though I generally use Factory Girl myself. But it was just an issue of, you know, how many inches are we going to give this particular uh, pro and con uh, in the book that's about views? Yeah, I, I, I think that uh, in general, it didn't seem like there was a whole lot missing there. It's, you know, the um, I, I think probably the one place where I it got my hackles up was using Cucumber for doing the um, the JavaScript testing with Capybara. When I think it was like a nice little survey of oh you know here's an example of using Capybara. I'm mean, not Capybara uh, Cucumber. 
but but there's there's like one of those controversial topics is cucumber versus just like capybara in our spec and right yeah so so like how'd you decide oh this is a good place to use cucumber even though we could be using you know one fewer technology to do something I, I think part of it is where our heads are at at any given at any given time i think we all kind of evolve in the view layer i know that i have i've made decisions that are different actually probably now than they would have been 18 months ago to some degree um, that is, that may be one of them, actually. Also, you have to keep in mind I'm a language nerd. So there was an example, an example there where I could use more language. And so obviously I'm going to throw that at people. Um, <laughs> well, uh, well, it would, it, well, I, I think I, it was, no, I think it was great to have an example of what it looked like. So for people who are making those choices about, oh, should I be using cucumber? They can see mm -hmm. a great example of what it looks like. So, you know, that, yeah. that was pretty, that was valuable on its own. And I think it does depend on who you're talking to as well. It, it's, once again, it's difficult in the book to target multiple types of people. And there are definitely multiple types of people looking at the book. You know, you've got people that are developers, you have people that are designers, and you've got kind of people that are just new in general uh, to software development. And Cucumber is, um, I mean, there's a lot of discussion about whether Gherkin is a good fit, you know, within a business or within a software development team or a software development team plus product managers that kind of, and I, you know, that's a fair point. It's something as a survey book that we felt we, we should, uh, we should probably hit. I think using Capybara directly from, uh, our spec or something else is completely reasonable. And it's something I do as a software developer when I don't have things that I want to necessarily copy and paste to someone else for them to look at. You did mention there about the audience of the book. How did you decide who you were targeting? I mean, were you targeting the developer who does a little bit of front-end integration? Were you targeting primarily the front-end developer? Uh, you know, which which audience were you appealing to most? Well, John can speak to this a little bit. Like really early on when we were looking at it, we were trying to focus it more on both both the designers and the developers. But you start to lose. It, it was very difficult to go deep at all on the Ruby side um, when we were talking to people. So I think we were probably mixing it quite a bit between develop front-end developers who maybe wanted to go a little bit deeper in terms of code because maybe they came at it from, like, we know several people, uh, for instance, that came at software development from the design world and they were kind of moving over, but they're already writing code in Rails. And I think for me personally, the group of people that I most wanted to speak to was the software developer who spends some small amount of time in the view but just enough time to really screw things up when they're in there. Um, <laughs> exactly. that, that's, that's me. And uh, yeah, I, I definitely felt like the, the book spoke to me. I mean, you know, you, ha you have things in there like a, a side on, you know, how to select good CSS selectors, you know, and stuff like that. And I felt you were talking straight to me. Yeah, the, yeah. One, one of the things that I talk about, talk with people as an example of what I think is a good practice for people that um, maybe don't know what they're doing, I used when I worked with Chad years ago. Chad and I, uh, Chad Feller and I, used to work together just as a two-man software development team. Chad used to do really funny things like leave me. He would check in code and leave me blinking red twenty-four point font text on views as a go clean this up because I am I know that this needs help, um, which I actually thought was a very helpful practice for me. I, um, I love that. <laughs> yeah, it would. It would be everything horrible he could find that he could make it obvious that this, yes, Bruce, I know this is not right. Go, go fix this thing. But there's a bunch of people that don't do that. They're not, 
even that helpful. What they do is they just go in there and it just kind of becomes a dumping ground. And I, we wanted to make them kind of morally aware that that's not a good idea. So yeah. I, I have a question uh, regarding HTML5. As some people may or may not be aware, the HTML5 specification is still a work in progress. Were you worried at all that, that things might uh, shift or change as you wrote the book as far as the HTML5 spec goes? I mean, things did shift and change in, across the board as we wrote the book. I remember sitting there with Bruce uh, when David introduced the asset pipeline, and he and I were like, yes! And then we realized that was half the book had to be rewritten. <laughs> it was like, no! Uh, but with, with HTML5, it's, you know, it's, it is a constant moving target, and I think the official date is something, you know, 10 years from now to be officially done and accepted, and okay, we're not going to not touch that, you know? And with a lot of the things, I've actually seen more things have problems in the CSS side of things. For example, with Flexbox and Flexible Layout and Grid Layout, that's been a far more uh, sandy soil moving under your feet kind of thing as opposed to the uh, the HTML5 elements seem to be pretty solid. Now, the other confusion is that HTML5 is now kind of the wrapper about around seven or eight different technologies, including the HTML lang- uh, you know markup spec. So... We didn't really get into anything like the um, web sockets or things like that that all become other options just because there was not enough time to get into it. But it's definitely a concern. And I mean, that's one of the things we've probably not been that great about is continuing to write articles on the blog. We've just both been slammed from an employment perspective. But there's a lot of little stuff that, that comes up and, and I try and link to it on the on Twitter and things like that when it happens. But um there's not too much has changed on the HTML side, but the CSS for sure. Flexbox is actually, if you wrote Flexbox a year ago, you have to rewrite it now. It's changed entirely. Mm-hmm. I thought it was uh, really nice to see that you didn't shy away from complicated topics. Um, a couple of examples like the discussion of IE versions uh, and how to detect those uh, and uh, fonts and how to handle those versus, you know, including them um, or hosted solutions or, or things like that. I, I thought you went into those fairly well. And, and, uh, I mean, again, maybe it's because I am, you know, a backend developer who's trying to get better, uh, at the other side. It was very helpful to me to understand the complexities of those issues. Yeah. I, I have a, I have a couple specific, uh, questions about content in the book. So, so, um, the, I, I thought the, the SCSS examples of, of uh, CSS, I liked the approach. I thought uh, everything was pretty good. The one thing that um, I thought could have used a mention was in, in, sh- in structuring your CSS, you did a lot of deep nesting. And when you generate the, the actual CSS from that, you get some pretty deep selectors. And that can cause performance problems if you go overboard with that. Yeah, so you know you 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 nest nest nest, and suddenly you have a selector that's five or six levels deep. When you really only need like one selector, you only need the class tag on or the you know the class on it. Yeah, I don't think we get to the level of five or six in the book, but um, you know it's definitely it's definitely true. I think one of the reasons we focused on I don't know if focus is the right word, but we definitely talked through nesting is the fact that it's not something that CSS supports itself. Uh, so it was kind of important to highlight it. It's definitely true. It, uh, John could speak more to this because we've had long discussions about whether or not I, I, for instance, you should use IDs or classes, um, let alone whether or not how deep you want to make your selectors. Yeah. Um, 
people do definitely go overboard with uh, SCSS selectors. That's definitely true. And it also depends where where you're deploying. For example, like we work on a lot of internal stuff, and we're deploying to the newest Chrome, and it's over a, a WAN. You know, we we they're they're on a you know 50 megabit line. So for people using those apps, I'm you know there's not as much of a performance issue. I can kind of abuse SCSS and really side towards developer happiness and clarity of what's going on, as opposed to having to you know go nuts on the optimization. Optimization is a huge important thing though, and it is worth looking at, you know, especially with things we didn't get into too much with extends. We mentioned it and now silent extends have come out too. There's a lot of power there that really helps you optimize your SCSS. And also I know Hampton showed off uh, in Austin the beginnings of libsass, uh, which basically is SAS in the C language as opposed to Ruby. So it's actually a library that's running. So that because they have stuff where they have 40, 50,000 lines of SCSS in some of the apps that, that he writes. And that's something that really, really sped up their compile times and also is going to make things a little better from uh, just interacting with, with SCSS in your, your app. But any, I mean, with any app, you can write crappy CSS by hand too. You know, you can go seven, eight levels deep. And it's just a matter of, you know, not only thinking how does this look, but what does it actually generate? Mm-hmm. That was maybe one thing that the book felt maybe a little light on was the the overall kind of performance concerns, you know, of of uh, getting in there and and minimizing the amount of assets and stuff. There were places where you went into it uh, that were really good. Like, there's actually a really good discussion on uh, sprites and uh, you know what they are, why you use them, and stuff like that. Uh, but uh, but maybe overall, yeah, some of that the performance concern, which does. Uh, you know, it is really key these days. I mean, we're all trying to get, you know, the request times down under a certain level. And a lot of that has to do with, uh, you know, cleaning up the front end and making it as efficient as possible. There's actually a great talk from Ruby Australia, uh, Keith Pitt and uh, Mario Vizek did. I don't know if you guys saw that, but it's um, Guide to Fast Websites. It's them walking through the, the actual optimization of one of their applications, one of their web apps. And they go how to get something from 10-second load down to a second and a half load. And it's a really great talk because you, you actually walk through the steps with them uh, and, and see. It's, it's a really complex topic, too. And again, these tools are changing just as fast as everything else in the view is changing. So we kind of talked about some of the stuff about, you know, looking at dead weight or, you know, some of those kind of options as things to look into and follow up on. But each one of these things could be chapter, you know? It's, it's very difficult to kind of say, where are we going to put the effort and the focus um, and keep it under, you know, 700 pages? Yeah. One of the things that, that I think is, be, is like, on the verge of becoming an important uh, technique in Rails applications is using form objects. And you had a, a very nice discussion of how to build presenters and a couple takes on that. That uh, that work pretty well. Have Have you guys done much with form objects? That would you? Yeah. What do you think about that as an approach for for handling some of the problems with with uh, dealing with forms and views? Are you talking about form builders specifically? Uh, okay. So the term form object is so generic. Um, right. That, exactly. The that word object it, tacked onto anything's generic. I yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's an object object. Okay. So the there's. Um, I've used this technique a couple times. I haven't really fleshed it out as much as I'd like to, but I know several people who've done this where it's sort of like doing a presenter, but it's it's sort of a plain old Ruby object 
that can act like a mo like an active record model enough that you can interact with it with your form or from okay. your form. Yeah. And yeah, but it, uh, but it's not database backed and it might actually be an aggregate of a couple different a active record models or no models at all behind it. Right. I do that often with active model. Mm -hmm. kind of yeah. Stuff. Yeah. Yeah, there's Active Model, there's Active ATTR, there, right. uh, mm -hmm. there's my own informal gem, which I'm probably end of lifing right now. Uh, and, and, you know, I found that this is like real, a really great way to take some stuff that you might put in a presenter and put it in some place that's a little closer to the data layer. And, right. and, and also it's so much better than using, um, what is it? The, the nested attributes. Agreed. Yeah. And mass, and mass assignment. Yeah, no, I completely agree with you, Josh. That kind of approach, especially at the aggregate level, because you end up with things like batches, for instance, like let's say it's a batch upload form or some kind of batch uh, aggregation result or something like that. It, anytime that I think it can make sense for you to treat something like a resource and to to model it, to actually do the data modeling, uh, you should do that. And it certainly makes building the view much, much easier because otherwise what you end up with is either a presenter that are that is really heavily view focused and really what you're talking about is the data, or you end up with a you know a wild slew of helpers that are trying to display something, uh, or you end up with just long chains uh, me of method calls inside of your form specifically, which are already complex enough to be able to display something to create a form field. So no, I totally agree. I think that's important. I think form builders and Form objects are something that people should focus on more when they're building views. Do you have a better name? Do you have a better name for form objects? You're you're a book author. You're, you're, do you have a good name for this? <laughs> I you know I just I just generally refer to them as models. Um, I I think it's just that there's there's models that are there's models that are database backed and there's ones that aren't. And so I don't know if it's right. It's important that we name them differently. I sometimes just refer to them as as a resource object. Mm -hmm. But yeah, it's it's tricky because you even even in the world of presenters, then you can talk about decorators, and you, you know, there's no real firm opinion on what exactly that word means, depending on who you ask. So yeah, it's it's tricky. Uh, I get what you mean by form object, though. So it's Josh, kind of the, the target of the form. Josh has a neat example there because it's uh, it's a, a data change that does actually end up being quite significant to the view layer as a whole, right? I, it's, I think that's maybe the most important thing that somebody can do inside of a view is to model their data correctly. So if you don't model your data correctly, a lot of the time, actually, I discover that I haven't modeled my data correctly when I start to build the view. And I'm like, actually, this isn't just, this is just not right. I, I, the composition is just not correct for this object, or I'm using too many objects or too few objects here. And sometimes that change, you know, trickles all the way down to persistence, all the way down to the database. And sometimes it's just something that you can handle at the active model or some whatever, you know, particular gem that you want to use to be able to model uh, the data. What are the things, what are the signals that you see that tell you that, oh, I've done it wrong here? In the view? Yeah. Uh, or <laughs> Well, there's a lot of signals, but I think probably the context that it's most obvious is within a form, just because you see people use helpers to be able to pull data out of objects, if they even do that. Oftentimes it's, you know, foo.bar.baz, you know, they'll actually do query. Anytime you see a what ends up being a query directly in the view, that really makes me wonder whether or not you're screwing up. In the very least, that should be in some object, in some presenter or in some other object. 
So that's probably the, the clearest distinction is the number of periods that you have on a line, really. If you take a look and see whether or not people are going deep to pull something out, um, then that makes sense. Or if they're using a lot of very closely named helpers. So if they're, if they're using a lot of helpers that all have the same prefix because they're all about kind of the same thing, but they haven't modeled that as an object, but they've kind of grouped them as kind of a method category, then yeah, that's a sign that somebody needs to break out a real object. You just make an object. It's the overhead is very, very small. That's what Ruby does really, really well. So take advantage of that. Josh had another good example, right, though, of dealing with uh, nested form parameters. That's usually a hint, right, that the, the data layer doesn't really fit how you're trying to put it in there. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Yeah, yeah the, the other thing I think that these, you know, these objects are good for is, you know, you know, in addition to the to the nested attributes, they're also good for replacing the mass assignment protection in a way that I think is more model focused than the oh, what's it called in Rails for the um, strong parameters? Yeah, the yeah the parameters, mm-hmm. the strong parameters. So I I haven't played with them enough to to really right. see how they work though. Right. In practice. Well, they're much they're much more focused on the actual individual application of the. Uh, of the parameters instead of saying at a model layer, this is what the model handles. Mm-hmm. Um, I think they're actually, that's another important thing that I think people should really learn about Rails 4 is strong parameters because that has a, a lot um, of effects and you can use that from, from Rails 3 as well. Mm-hmm. The book talked about Formtastic and I, I was a big fan of Formtastic for a little while and I've shifted over to using simple form primarily now. I've is- done the same thing. I think that anything is better than nothing. So it just depends on, I think in a, just in a lot of different categories inside this book, we realized a lot of this stuff just comes down to taste. As long as they are doing something over just tossing stuff into the view, it's a good idea. Formtastic is definitely more opinionated um, and it makes decisions that um, sometimes make designer, I, I know that working with John and with others is trickier for them to fit into certain designs. It just takes more work. Yeah, we talked about Formtastic. I think it was at the time of the of time of writing, it was certainly the most complete. I think Simple Form has come along. And it's something that I probably use more frequently now because it's less opinionated. From a styling perspective, Simple Form, I love that I can I can go in there and actually change the the pieces that generate the the code. When I do an f.input, I can actually go in and say, okay, now I want f.input to generate this, um, which allows me to really get detailed on how I'm going to style things. And then you can pass in wrapper HTML. So it's, it's a lot, to me, it's just a lot cleaner than how I had to do things with Formtastic. Right. From a, from a use perspective, it's not wildly different. So I think uh, the, the material we present is, is still useful. It's just that, um, yeah, under the covers, there's a lot of differences in output, especially, and, and how you can change those things. Okay, cool. So I want to ask your opinion on something just to see where you go with it. I know you covered some, some topics that are very relevant to this, but I got a design from a designer that I paid for for one of my websites, and, and they gave me back, you know, a couple of really massive HTML files, you know, several hundred or more lines of code. How do you approach something like that and break it into kind of a sane way of managing the view when you pull it into your Rails app? So I have a I have a question for you. Actually, are you going to get more designs from him? Is it going to be an ongoing relationship, or is this a here's your code? Yeah, this one was a here's your code. Most okay. most of the time, that's what I wind up with. Okay. Um, sometimes it's ongoing, but most of the time it's okay. John, do you want to tackle this since you actually do this a lot? Sure. Usually, what I'll what um 
what I'll do is I just kind of start and I strip out everything that's not absolutely mission critical. Um, what is the bare bones that becomes the page frame? Uh, if there's multiple variations, like there's a different home page and a different inside page, then I'll strip those down to the bare bones and those become my application.html.erb or, you know, landing.html.erb in my, my layout files. And then I start taking those pieces and working down. So if I've got global things like a header, especially when I have multiple into like multiple pages with shared elements. So same footer on the home page and the inside page with different headers, for example. That might be one example where then I'd pull a footer the footer out to a, you know, layouts, you know, shared uh footer partial. Uh and I kind of break it down that way. For me it's all about understanding the what that block is. And I usually associate visual blocks on the page with partials when I'm doing this kind of work. Mm-hmm. And so that I'll break those out like that. The um, navigation, it depends on, on how crazy we get. If it's just static, I'll just usually put it in a file. Sometimes I even leave it in the layout file if it's not too complex. Sometimes we do more complex navigation with, for example, the goose gem like Bruce uh, that Bruce made. Uh, and that's when you start to kind of push things into different places. The biggest thing I find is actually my SCSS organization has gotten a heck of a lot more complex. I will break things down into very minute things. And instead of controller-based, I talk about areas of the site. So it may may be a parody to controllers, but it often is a little broader. And so we'll have various setups. Um, and I'm actually working... We, we had built one of these at Living Social called Wild, which I've shown a lot of pieces of in, in the talk I've been giving and a lot of examples from it. But we're... Um, with uh, Lynn Wallenstein, who helped write it, leaving and going to GitHub, we're having some difficulty finishing it to get it out. It works for internal, but we were trying to open source it. So we're kind of rebuilding that now as something um, for a project that Bruce and Lynn and I are working on. And hopefully we'll be able to kind of open source that. And that gives a lot of insight into how we build things. Because a lot of people are like, oh, bootstrap and forget it. And I think that's the wrong approach. That's kind of the cargo culting. Um, and it's really about using those tools to say, here's some best practices and here's how I can re-implement that for something that's that I understand and I've built and, and solves my specific problem as opposed to having 50% of this extra code in Cruft in a library that you didn't need. But, I mean, when you approach... So that's, I mean, deciding if you're going to use one of those kind of libraries is definitely part of that process. But I tend to prefer to kind of just go from scratch and pull the pieces in that I need. Yeah, well, the thing I would say is uh, one goal for me when I'm doing something like this is to try to mentally extract a style guide from it. And maybe even rip those pieces out. This is even separate of where to put them and if they should be in partials or if they should be in the layout. But actually try to identify, oh, that's what this means. This is the type of markup that I should be using for this piece. This is the design style for this um, this type of data for my tables or whatever. And once you get to that point, you can start to break it down into, uh, you know, SCSS modules or however you want to lay that out uh, data-wise. Um so that you can use it. But the most important thing is that you internalize what the designer has laid out for you and how that can be reused. And it kind of depends on what your use case is, whether or not that's in a partial, whether that's in a helper, whether or not that ends up in SCSS. Yeah, and I would say it's also to make sure that a lot of times we'll approach things with a sledgehammer because we know how. So I see a lot of people that say, oh, this is great. I'll just go ahead and start building a presenter from day one. And I usually encourage people to really start simple and, and don't extract it to there until it's a pain point that's worth extracting because otherwise you end up with a lot of metaprogramming or a lot of weird stuff that's buried away and I've seen some really ugly presenter code 
because somebody just wanted to, to write a presenter as opposed to, and it would have been easier done as just helpers or ERB. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. All right, do we have any other questions before we get into the picks? Because uh, we need to start looking at winding down. Okay, I guess I'll just say one more thing, not so much a question, but um, we haven't mentioned at all that the book actually does have some pretty good coverage on uh, mail and designing email and stuff like that. And Oh, oh yeah, yeah. I, I think that, that, that the chapter on, on doing HTML, styled HTML in email, is just, I've never seen a good write-up of it like this before. Yeah. It's just amazing. So It's another example of one of those, yeah, this sucks, and uh, here's what you got to do if you really got to do it. But it also takes a really practical approach. Like um, there was an emphasis on designing the text email, which I thought was really great. Uh, and then some uh, showing some great tools like Letter Opener and Litmus and stuff like that. So uh, anyways, I just thought it was a good section, and we haven't mentioned it at all. So. And there's a new gem that, that we found out after the book came out called Rody, which actually lets you extract your CSS out. And it does all the nastiness of putting your CSS in line and making all your URLs absolute, which is it's, it's really nice on the developer happiness side. And it lets you serve the, the problem. Awesome. Yeah. yeah, let me just say, too, I was very happy that John wrote that chapter or most of it <laughs> um, because... As a topic, that is a topic that really, really was painful for me. And um, I actually learned a lot from just reading what John put together. He has to do that kind of thing. I don't as often. And it was really, really good to learn from someone um, that has to focus on it. Awesome. All right. Well, uh, thanks for writing the book, guys. It, it really is a terrific way of exploring this layer of Ruby on Rails. So, yeah, it's, it's very humbling. It's, I think it puts people back in their place a little bit. There are a lot of developers, I think, who are who are very kind of condescending about the whole view layer. It's not real programming. And this just brings back how incredibly difficult it is to do well and do it right. And it makes it, it kind of frames it as a challenge as well, which I think a lot of de developers react well to. You mean it's not just HTML? <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, just just make it handle. All the problems will go away. Oh, that's right. Oh, I forgot. Yeah, trolling. <laughs> Ouch. <laughs> uh, all right, let's uh, let's go ahead and do okay. the picks. Uh, do Do we want to talk about uh, the next book before we do picks? Nah. Or does that come Or does that come after picks? Nah. Go ahead. Uh, okay. So so uh, our next book club book is going to be Explore It. What's the full title of this book? <laughs> it's like uh, I don't have the page up anymore. I have it here. Reduce risk and increase confidence with exploratory testing. Yes, and it's by Elizabeth Hendrickson. And uh, it's a it's a new book out, so I don't think uh, many people have read it by this point. And I uh, we haven't scheduled the, the episode when Elizabeth's going to come on yet, but it'll probably be in the next month or two. Yeah. In fact, if we don't talk to her soon, uh, she might learn about it on this episode. <laughs> no, 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 no. We, we've already tweeted about it. <laughs> so she knows. She, she, she's totally up for coming on the show. Um, just gonna find it. We'll probably aim to do this one around the end of June, just because a couple of us are away for pretty much all of May. <laughs> so. Yes. The, yeah, yeah, there's that a lot going about. on. Okay. Yeah. Anyway, and, and it's, uh, it's an interesting book. It's not, it's not Ruby-focused specifically. But uh, but it's definitely applicable to the development work we do in Ruby. Awesome. All right, now let's get to the picks. Uh, Katrina, do you want to start us off? I do. Um, lately, I've been thinking a lot about 
becoming a smarter person because I desperately want to be a smarter person. And one of the things I came across quite recently is a website called Lumosity. So it's a bunch of games that you can play every single day or at least three to five times a week that are designed to help you think more quickly, to in increase your attention span, to allow you to practice focusing, um, increase spatial awareness, that sort of thing. And it's all based on uh, neuroscientists uh, or like the work of neuroscientists, um, you know, those people who, who know stuff about how your brain works. And Lumosity, I saw the, the, some of the people who are programming the website yesterday in the expo hall at RailsConf. They are one of the sponsors this year. And um, it just reminded me that I needed to pick it because it's pretty awesome. Awesome. It, it is awesome. I'm, I'm going to go get smarter too. Uh, James, what are your picks? I have a couple technical this time. Uh, first of all, just a plugin I've been using at work uh, that's uh, kind of helpful. Uh, in active records, sometimes, you know, you have several fields that are like attributes of a model kind of thing, you know, several properties, uh, and uh, you want to just cram them all down into one field. This will do it as uh binary bits on an integer, right? Um, so, and then it can generate the SQL queries for that, you know, so you can find the, the entries that match and stuff like that. Anyways, the, the plugin's called Flag Shizu. So uh, I've been using it at work and found it pretty helpful. Um, and then the other thing I have is uh, Ernie Miller, I guess, gave his talk at uh, RailsConf yesterday, and uh, I did not see it. I didn't catch it on the stream, but I did go through the slide deck this morning, and it is unbelievable. The talk is called An Intervention for Active Record, and if you basically want to see the Active Record Ruby Showdown, this is the talk for you. He goes through and, and looks at 